0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: So Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalam named Hirah. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, Died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father in law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had not had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord, and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left... She took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at her name? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she said, and she added, if you, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, Came out and he was given the name Zerah. Good morning
0: again, Ian. Thank you for reading that uh, difficult reading for us. Do keep it open at um, page 42 of the Pew Bibles. And in the little bundle that you received in the way in, you'll find a, a white bit of paper. It's got um, some hymns on one side, on the back, there's an outline of the sermon that you might find helpful to have to hand over the next few moments. Well, as we have God's word before us, let me pray for his help as we look at it together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are building your people brick by brick. And Father, we thank you that there is no life, no story, no person who's beyond the reach of your grace. And so please help us to be a people this morning you understand what you're doing in the world and how you work and the kind of people you are building we pray this in Jesus name amen there is a view in our culture that thinks christianity is only for good people for middle class respectable well-rounded people who give to charity and who recycle conscientiously, not for moral failures. I think of one woman a while ago who said to me, I could never be good enough to become a Christian. I think that view can easily seep into the church. We feel a certain pressure to put on a, 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 a superficial Um, picture to people that our lives are sorted, that we're making it, that we're doing well on top of things in our lives. And so we might have a a blazing row in the car with the family on the way to church, but then the moment we arrive and walk through the doors, it's all smiles and happy family because that's what we have to do at church. Maybe it's um, what happens at small group when we come to that point where we share prayer prayer requests and rather than revealing what is actually going on deep down in our hearts, rather than talking about the bitterness and anger and disappointment and doubts about whether there's a God at all and the lust that's in our hearts, perhaps we just ask for more energy because we're a bit tired, because that sounds more respectable rather than letting on what's actually in our hearts. We, we fear what people would think of us if they actually knew what was happening, Last week, we started a series looking at Jacob's family. And we saw Joseph, the dreamer with a fancy coat, who got mugged by his brothers and then sold as a slave into Egypt. It's a brilliant story, a a real Sunday school classic. This week, not so much. It's a story of a hard and calloused heart a story of premature death, a story of lying and of misused contraception. It's a story of prostitution and terrible hypocrisy. I remember a lady at my previous church hearing this read and being outraged that this story will be read in public on a Sunday. And I wonder if that is exactly the point Because we will see this morning in Genesis 38 that Christianity is not there to make good people a bit nicer, but rather it is a message, a promise, an offer of good news for people who know that they are broken, who are rebels, who do not deserve anything from God, and yet because of his remarkable grace, God has an unstoppable plan to bring all kinds of people, even the most unlikely people, into his glorious eternal plans. Last week, we left things on a cliffhanger. Joseph, the man that God has chosen to save the world, has just been sold into slavery. But instead of the camera rolling with Joseph, it pans around to, to Judah and I don't know about you, but I kind of want to see what happens to Joseph. He's the main man, we think. But no, the camera is stuck on Judah. And it's there for a good reason. Because the story of Joseph isn't just about one man. It's about a family and a bigger picture story. And as we look at Judah this morning, we are seeing that if God can bring this man and this life, this story into his plan to rescue the world, then there is no one in history that is beyond the reach of God's grace. I want to work through the key scenes of the story before finishing with some implications for us this morning. You'll see in your handout the first scene is this rebellion, a man rejecting God's plan. We pick up the story immediately after Judah and co. have sold Joseph into slavery. And so, verse one. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. Joseph leaves the family. This isn't some gap year adventure off to explore the world. We cannot understand this chapter unless we understand that Earlier on in Genesis, God made a promise to this particular family that in and through them, he would bring about a plan of blessing that would be forever for the whole world, through this one family. And as we see Judah leaving the family, he is walking away from God's plan to bless the world. Just as an aside, if I can for a moment... We aren't told why Judah leaves the family, but I reckon it's not hard to work it out. We know from last week that Judah was the ringleader who decided upon the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. And imagine the repercussions in the years to come. Imagine over breakfast as Judah is sat there and his dad is sat there, his dad red-eyed, weeping from grief over his lost son, and Judah, knowing he's the one responsible day in, day out, year in, year out. And I wonder if he just couldn't face any longer the consequences of his sin. And so he left. Much easier to leave than to face up to it. And in, in my experience of pastoring people over the years, I've seen again and again that when people are caught up in a, a story of, of sin and deceit, so often it's easier just to leave than to face up to the consequences. You see people pulling back from a small group, pulling back from relationships where they're known well, pulling back from coming on a Sunday, because it's just easier. I think that is what Judah is doing here. Back to our story, verse two. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. Our translations sanitize what goes on here. More literally, Judah saw and he took. He saw and took. It's very similar language to back in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve saw the fruit and she just took it. She didn't care what God's plan was. She just acted on her desires. That's very much how Judah is operating at the moment. He doesn't care what God's plan is. He just just wants this woman and he takes her. It's very clear in Genesis that God's plan for this family was that they were not to marry the local Canaanite woman. That's very clear from the context. Judah does not care. He saw and took. God graciously gives him three sons. His oldest one marries Tamar, but verse 7 Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in God's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We don't know what Ur er did. It was clearly very wicked. And in response, verse eight, then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for her brother. Now, to our 21st century ears, this sounds quite odd. I know my sisters-in-law would not be at all comforted by the thoughts of marrying me if the worst would have happened to my brothers. And if you're new to us or just visiting, this is not common practice here at Fullwood. you would be glad to know. <laughs> but back in, in Judah's day, this was both common and a good thing to do. Before a welfare state, if a woman were to be bereaved, left a widow with no children, that the wider family had a responsibility to provide her offspring so that she'd be cared for in her older age. And that is what happens here with the second brother. Except he's not very keen on the idea. He used an early form of contraception and denied Tamar the chance to have children. And so verse 10, God put him to death. Now, this seems like an extraordinarily strong response from God to act so severely. But this is where context is so important. Remember, God's plan for this particular family is that they would have lots of offspring. And through this family, becoming a great nation, would bless the world forever. And here, Onan's decision to withhold kids from Tamar is a direct rejection of God's plan for the world. That is why it's so serious and the consequences so severe. And the thing is, Judah joins in on the rejection of God's plan. He promises his final son, Shelah, to Tamar in verse 11. But by verse 14, we read, right at the end of the verse, Tamar saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. And so here is a man, Judah, a rebel, rejecting God's plan. Then it's sheep shearing time, which seems to be hard work by day and then partying by night. And Tamar knows this. And she hatches the most extraordinary and risky plan. And it works. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute For she had covered her face, not not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Judah is so impatient to have sex that he does something remarkable. In verse 18, he hands over the equivalent of his passport and credit card and driver's license. And he gets what he wants. And by this point in the story, well, it's... it's incredibly hard to read, isn't it? Judah has abandoned the chosen family. He has married the wrong woman. He has lied, refused to care for Tamar and to provide children for her according to God's plan for the world. And now he's using a prostitute. And I think behind all these presenting sins, and there are many, lies the great sin of pushing God out of his life. You Think back to how it began in the beginning, back in Genesis 3, that from the beginning humanity have rejected God and his word and plan for the world in preference for our own appetites and plans. That same pattern is alive and well in Judah's life. He prefers the short-term blessings of his, of his plans and he pushes God's great big gospel promises away And that same attitude goes on again and again throughout history and is alive and well today in our world and even in our hearts today. God promises us this morning great gospel promises the joy of sins forgiven and a guilt free conscience of a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father, of certainty that on the day of judgment we will be saved, a life in the new creation world-changing, wonderful gospel promises, but so often in the moment, we push God's plans away and we live for short-term pleasures according to our own rules. And that is what the human heart is like. Rebellion, a man rejecting God's plan. Next, revelation, a man confronted with his sin. The first clue that all is not as it seems to Judah comes when his friends can't find the prostitute. And then, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. His hypocrisy is breathtaking. He uses a prostitute, and then when he discovers that Tamar is accused of being one, he says, burn her. And then it happens. Verse 25. As she was being brought out... She sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. For once in his life, Judah has nowhere to hide. In the past, he was able to lie and cover up his sin. He's been far from the family doing stuff he shouldn't be doing in a distant place. But now his sin is revealed for all to see. There's no need for a DNA test here. The dad is clearly identified by the belongings of, of Judah. There's no doubt. And the consequences of sin are clear for all to see. Just imagine in the years to come as Judah goes down to the co op to get some milk, and in one hand, one of the boys, the other hand, the other boy. And as he walks into the shop, someone whispers, Is he the granddad? And someone says, no, I think he's the dad. Revelation, a man confronted with his sin. And Judah's response is crucial. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son Sheila." And he did not sleep with her again. It's really important to see that although, yes, Judah has sinned sexually, notice how he winds the story back further in the story, back to the beginning. And he acknowledges that the heart of his sin is he would not give offspring to Tamar. Because that was a rejection of God's plan. He realizes the heart of the matter is that he's pushed God's plan for this family away and he's lived for himself. And there's something very important going on in this moment of revelation. The world around us tells us that the way that we progress in life is to be told that we are amazing. We need our... Our self-esteem to be built up. We must tell our children that they can do anything, be anyone they want. We're not allowed to criticize or put people down. That's, that's, that's going to control them and restrict them. So we're told. And we spend so much of our time and energy trying to broadcast this view of ourselves that we are that kind of presentable, well-rounded, sorted kind of character. But here, Judah does something totally countercultural. He owns his sin. And instead of that crushing him and ruining him, it makes him. This is rock bottom for Judah. This is as bad as it gets, but we'll see in the coming chapters that it is the moment when his life turns around. And in the coming chapters, and it's gonna be wonderful to see, uh, later on in the story, where once he had no time at all for his dad, we'll see him, Concern for the grief of his dad, where once he was happy to sell a brother into slavery in a cold-hearted act of um, sort of money-grabbing, it, future will see him willing to put himself into slavery to free a son. Judah will be a transformed man, wonderfully, and it all comes back to this moment of revelation when he owns his sin. He cannot hide and says, yes, this is what I've done. Instead of crushing him, it is the making of him. We spend so much of our time and energy keeping up the pretense, trying to convince ourselves and others that we are basically good. But actually, it is the moment when we stop running. It is the moment when we put our hand up and say, yes, that is what I've done, that is who I am rather than being the moment when we are broken, it is the moment we are made, where new life begins, of restoration and return. How is that possible? Because in the world around us, without the gospel message, that would crush us. That's why we can't do it. What is it about Judah that makes it possible for him to own his sin and not be destroyed by it? Well, our third point, restored A man covered by God's grace. Look at verse 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were two boys in her womb. Uh, A struggle ensues. Perez is born, followed by Zerah. And now, at, at one level, this is great news for Tamar. Her great longing to have children has come about. She now has two boys. And in that sense, God's been gracious because even though this was an illicit relationship, the boys survive and they, they live. But there's better news than that. We aren't told exactly what happens to um, the parents or the family. We might wonder if they're left as outcasts on the edge of the storyline because they were so messed up. But no, no. If you we were to read forward in the story, don't turn to it now, but in Genesis 46, there comes a moment when the whole family moved down to Egypt to be hosted by the then prime minister, Joseph. And as we lead the list of people who come down with the family, and I love this, in the list, there is Judah. He's back with the brothers. And beneath his name, there is Perez and Zara right in the center of the family, covered by God's grace. Judah is restored, not because he deserves it, not because he's um, a good man, but simply because of God's grace. And as I said last week, the story, this story is full of rumors of a greater rescue to come, and there is greater grace to come because centuries later in Matthew gospel, when he begins his account of the life of Jesus, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1, we discover that this illicit relationship between Judah and Tamar in a roadside brothel was one of the key links that the Lord used to bring about the birth of the saviour of the world, because Judah and Tamar are parents of Perez. Perez is the forefather of Jesus. Sin matters. It matters a very great deal. That is why when Jesus came, he didn't come just to be a teacher or an example, although he is both of those. He came primarily to be a savior by dying on the cross. He died because sin mattered that much. He died because that's what it takes to bring broken rebels who were far away back into God's family. He died to take our punishment onto himself. We're going to share bread and wine in just a moment. And if you're trusting Jesus, come and Rejoice together that he brings rebels in through his death. That is the greater grace. Judah, in Genesis 38, is just a a foretaste, a rumor of the gospel grace we see in the Lord Jesus. He is forever a trophy of God's grace, a ruined life, a life of sinful rebellion, but a life ultimately covered by God's grace. Two big implications as we finish. God's plans cannot be stopped. God promised to make this family into a great nation. Judah tried to stop the family growing through his sin. And yet, by the end of the story, the boys are born. The family is growing. And even if it takes a roadside brothel to progress his plans... God's plans cannot be stopped. Tamar, I think, is the heroine of the story because she believed God's plan and promises and would not let go of his plan to grow this family. I'm not saying that we should copy the methods that she used. Of course not. But her willingness to cling on to God's promises and to stick at trusting him is surely an example for us to follow today. In this broken world, we will experience suffering. We will be the victims of the sin of other people. It, it will at times be a roller coaster ride, trusting God. But I think like Tamar, we are to cling on to his plans, knowing that they will come to pass. And so when he promises us that on judgment day, we will be rescued, that we will see him face to face, that in the new creation, we will, we will be freed from suffering and death and pain, well, we, we can cling on to those plans. Nothing can stop them. And for us to see here that he always brings them to pass, well, it helps us, doesn't it, to keep on clinging to his promises and plans. Finally, God's plans graciously include the most unlikely people. The story of Judas shows us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace Matthew's genealogy of the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1 contains just four, uh, five sorry, five women, others are men, five women. The first is Tamar, who acted like a prostitute. The second is Rahab, who, well, was a prostitute. Uh, the third was Ruth, who was a pagan Moabite from a different, a different nation. Uh, the fourth woman is Beersheba, who was an adulteress having an affair with King David while she was married to someone else. And the fifth woman is Mary, found to be pregnant before she was married. Those are the five women, and these are the kinds of people God includes in his rescue plan for the world. I wonder if there are some here this morning who feel a bit like Judah. We know that we have been on the run from God and his promises. We have been involved in a mesh of secret sin Maybe it's sexual sin. And we feel as if to talk about that to anyone would be the end of us. We know that we've been running after short term pleasures, calling the shots, making the decisions, pushing God and His promises out of our mind. What can I say to you this morning? Please don't run. Please don't keep running. God's grace is sufficient for every story and for every life. And just as for Judah, it was the making of him to own his sin, so too for us here this morning. And can I encourage you to speak to someone? That maybe. It's a close friend, maybe it's a small group leader. I know that um, Chris and I will be around at the end as well. Uh, come and speak to us. I know that owning our sin can feel like a disaster. But Judah shows us the power of God's grace. And if a repentant Judah were to walk into our church meeting next week with two boys side by side the offspring of an affair with a prostitute, and if they were to sit somewhere near the front of the building, I wonder how we would welcome that family into our church. It's been well said that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And when we understand how God reached out to Judah and to us here this morning, for each one of us in our hearts have been rebels too, then it helps us to be the kind of church who finds a home for people like Judah. Let me pray. Father, we... Acknowledge this morning that these words are hard to hear. Um, The story is so troubling, so messed up at so many levels. And yet, Father, we thank you for the gritty, brutal reality of these kinds of stories, which pull no punches and reveal what humanity gets up to. And Father, even as we see the depth of human sin, we praise you for the glory of your grace. Father, we thank you for your unstoppable plan to bring together a people who you will make for your own and keep safe into eternity. And we thank you that people is not made up of sorted, well-rounded people, but a people full of brokenness and sin. And Father, we thank you that that is your plan for us and for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.